Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. This is episode number three. I'm Bill Whitson, owner of Cultivariable and your host. Today I'm talking with Tom Wagner, a breeder of corn, tomatoes, and potatoes, who's been at this for about 60 years. He sometimes offers his creations through Tatermater Seeds, a company that he started in 1983. Tom is probably best known for the creation of the tomato variety Green Zebra, tomato that is found in catalogs all around the world and that is often listed erroneously as an heirloom. In addition, Tom is very well known for his work promoting and educating people about growing potatoes from true potato seed. Tom Wagner, welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. Hey, Bill. Thank you so much, and good day, everybody. I'm really excited about this this interview because you are one of the three people, I think, who are who have been most influential on on the work that I do. And certainly when it comes to potatoes, which are one of the big crops that I work with, I, I, I really learned the bulk of what I know before, you know, descending into the scientific literature uh, from you and particularly from your forum and uh, and all of your writings. So um, I'm, I'm really excited about this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. So could you tell us a little bit about your background, what plants you breed, how you got started in plant breeding, and, and, and how long you've been at it? Well, uh, this is starting my 65th year, 65 years. Most people, you know, retire at 65, and I'm not even retired after doing 65 years of work. So <laughs> I'm still going at it. Uh, my name is uh, Tom Wagner, otherwise known as Tater Mater. I made tater. That's why I'm the tater mater. If I only had tomato, that'd be the mater mater, and that would be <laughs> redundant. So I gotta, I gotta use a CB handle. You know, like I'm not the rubber ducky. Come on, I'm tater mater. <laughs> so you also work with corn, though. So how does that work? I do. Yeah, I work with corn. You know, I, I had a lot of fun with corn. It was one of the things that I worked with. Starting out, uh, you know, breeding work in, in 1954. Imagine 1954. Uh, corn, you know, would cross pollinize. So you had the Indian corn next to sweet corn, it would cross. You had a next to field corn, it would cross. And I found that uh, but when planting uh, Indian corn, if I would pick out different colors of corn, you know, I could come up with more colors than within the ear. And I just kept messing around with it where I could get 100 different colors, shades of colors in a single ear. And I learned that you had to pick out certain colors in a certain combination and plant it in the bulk, you know, and then let it cross-pollinize to get all the colors. So I kind of learned the hard way, you know, little by little, planting stuff and seeing what happened. Was there an order to how you uh, started working with these plants? I assume you didn't start with all of them all at once. Well, I was into everything, you know. I, I was in charge of the dairy herd, you know. My dad let me uh, name all the calves and I told him when we had to bring in a new bull, my grandfather on my mom's side and bred uh, mules, you know, collected uh, different breeds of mares, you know, tried to get to as many mares as he could of one one breed and cross them and then get uh, teams of mules that were alike in temperament and size. And I had a grandmother who uh, maintained old heirloom seeds, you know, from what her mother brought from Germany in 1888. Uh, and they just refer to it as a German green bean, a German tomato. Uh, so I picked up those uh, heirloom things uh, just and, and grew them. Other grandmother uh, bred uh, Rhode Island red hens, you know, uh, line breeding, you know, where she would uh, select certain roosters from the best land hens, use those, you know, to crop to the whole uh, flock of hens, you know. And then she had uh, orders, you know, for hatching eggs uh, and for 
Fort Dade, where she grew up in uh, in Kansas. She was selling uh, eggs and chicks to Nebraska and Iowa and Madura and Kansas. And also she bred uh, canaries, you know, and she had import heart mountain canary songbird, male birds that knew how to sing, you know, from from the tradition of Hart Mountain in Germany. And when she sold those songbirds, you know, I was uh, called in to whistle for the, for the, uh, for the new chicks that would hatch out, you know, so I got to learn how to whistle pretty good. So plant breeding was just part of what, what happened uh, animal breeding, uh, you know, just, it was just there to, to play around with. And they were like, they were like toys, you know, and as I grew up in a household of 18 people in the household, uh, set of grandparents and an uncle and an aunt, a great aunt, and uh, another uncle was his wife and three kids and my great aunt uh, maid and the, my mom and dad and three siblings. You know, it was uh, quite a household, and we had to grow food and tomatoes and corn and potatoes were definitely things that we had, and, uh, you know, uh, there was always things that had to be improved, so why not be a plant breeder like... Uh, Luther Burbank and uh, make some improvement right along. When did you first think that you might want to approach plant breeding as a profession? As a profession, I I would say at 12 years old, I had a hernia operation, had to go into the hospital for a hernia uh, thing at that time. You stayed in there for a couple of days, and during those two days, they brought in the the whole volume from the library of Luther Burbank journals. And when I got through with those after two or three days in the hospital, been there, done that, you know. (laughs) <laughs> so, and it's so funny, Luther Burbank started with potatoes back in, in Lancaster, Massachusetts. I started with potatoes and other crops in Lancaster, Kansas, just outside of Lancaster. And um, he he took the early rose variety and got his uh, Burbank seedling. I took the cobbler variety, which is just one generation from the early rose and got my seedling. So... Uh, it was interesting that we both started with potatoes in similar named town. He went to California. I went to California eventually. He did. I'm alive. That's, I mean, you know, the, yeah. the parallels are amazing, especially that, that you started from the same basic genetics that, that he did. I wouldn't have guessed that at all. Well, that's, that's what makes it so serendipitous. We were not that far away from, from how we think, how we live, how we imagine things. And I had a, a great advantage. I was born deaf. I said I couldn't hear until I was two, and then even then my hearing is such that I only hear 40% of the word correctly, and I have to use a lot of imagination to hear word correctly. And uh, because that uh, not hearing thing, I would rather just be out in the garden, out with the cows, with the chickens, uh, looking at plants. And uh, it's, it's funny that you look at plants and you see the, the wind blowing the corn pollen all over the place. You look at bees. Uh, you look at tomatoes, you look at uh, potatoes, you think, well, how did, you, how did the tomato get crossed? You know, wait a minute, they've got a flower. How come they're not crossing like the sweet corn? So you have to do a lot of watching and looking and imagining. So being hard of hearing is a blessing. If you don't have a, if you don't have a handicap, you've been robbed. I think you really need a handicap. We, we talked the other night about how plant breeding is, is kind of an, an introvert-selecting activity but uh, sure I don't, I don't really think of you so much as an introvert. It's, it's more like you've been forced into that uh, by circumstances instead. I would say yes, circumstances made me an introvert. I think uh, innately I can be quite extroverted. Uh, you know, I can greet people quite well. My grandfather Kagan uh, was a was a great uh, 
role model, no matter who you talk to. They were his friend, you know. He always asked him what old country they were from or something like that. And he could always break the ice immediately. So you breed a lot of, you've bred a lot of plants, and, but, and you're particularly well known in some circles for potato breeding. But, but I think what you're really most known for is tomato breeding. And you you have yeah, a lot sure. of uh, you have a lot of varieties that people would be would probably be familiar with if they've grown what they believe to be heirloom tomatoes. Yep, and normally heirloom tomatoes got to be like fifty years older. And uh, well, guess what? Starting out with the tomatoes in the fifties, you know, collecting the the varieties that went to current day heirlooms, you know, started uh, over fifty years ago. So uh, green zebra itself is around. 40, what is it, about 45 years old now. So it's almost an heirloom. They call it an heirloom or a uh, kind of an artificial heirloom of sort. It's an heirloom by design. But if you look at any collection of tomatoes, the green zebra is almost ubiquitous. It's always listed and shown. And it's one of the most easily recognized tomatoes just by sight. I mean, you look at a Cherokee purple, you're not going to recognize it immediately. If you look at a big boy, are you going to recognize it, a better boy or an early girl? Um, It's just one of those uh, unique things that happened in my life that I was able to create something that became part of the the art, the collection, you know, the living art. And I think uh, living art is actually a, a good way of describing heirloom because they are more artful than just a conventional red tomato. You shared a really interesting post on Facebook the other day, which was a which was a picture of a packet of tomato seeds that was a mix of different varieties, and I think it showed that it showed that three of the ten varieties included in the mix no, were varieties. No, there's 20, 20 varieties in there, and and it's a locally uh, sourced uh, seed company, Ed Hume. He's known in the Seattle, Washington area, and he normally has adapted varieties for this location, and and on the back of the package, it lists a whole bunch of varieties, including a green zebra, the lime green salad, and the banana leg. So, yeah, I was uh, quite intrigued, the fact that I'm part of that kind of a, a mix of uh, what's now heirloom tomatoes. And uh, it was it was apropos that he finally had that because I talked to Ed Hume directly uh, almost uh, 14 years ago, and uh, he was not interested in carrying in my variety. So here it's, uh, it's uh, just that uh, he does actually have it now in, in a collection. But now, does he mention anywhere on the packet or, or the materials that, that you <laughs> were the breeder not. of these varieties? Of course not. Of course not. The, 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 the thing is, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a free breeder. I'm an open source plant breeder. What I, what I breed up is everybody. Uh, when I was given presentations in Europe, I said, my seeds are your seed. You know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm so free with my variety that I, I never really claimed ownership of them. Uh, once I released them, they were everybody's seed. And that's uh, the real definition of a, of an heirloom variety. If people think it's valuable enough to plant it, to grow it, to trade it, to sell it, you know, recommend it, lift it again. You know, there's so many things that go into making a variety popular. I'm just happy that they can be this way. Would you be happier, though, if people were, if people more frequently gave you credit for the development of these varieties? The credit is uh, oftentimes in there. Uh, the only problem with credit, it doesn't pay the bills. So when I 
think of how much research I would like to have had done. You know, it takes money to do research. Even Curzio uh, yesterday on your podcast said, you know, his resources are limited. So you know, a plant breeder needs help sometimes to do the work they really want to do because it, uh, it takes a lot of space. It takes labor. It takes a lot of book work. And I, I have notoriously bad handwriting. And so I, I, even though I write everything down, it's hard for other people to see what it is. But I usually, when I write down information about a tomato, for example, I can just look at the seed package and immediately all my little notes, you know, bring back that tomato in, in a, like a photographic memory of that tomato, you know, the number of locules, the size of it, the, the aroma, the smell, the feel. There's so many things that go into it. I think uh, I've been blessed with a kind of a uh, unknown talent, you know, to put together something and, and make it uh, come alive. And, and it appears that you mostly do pedigree breeding, which is, uh, which is not always the most popular choice these days. But, uh, but I think that that goes along with your particular skills there, right? You have a memory for all of those parents and grandparents going a, back generations. a memory, and I do follow pedigree because it's kind of like uh, dairy cows. You know, if you follow anything of registered Holstein, you know, you realize all of the names, you know, have a special... Uh, name you know that goes back to the the dam and the sire and you know the bull and the and the cow side and uh, you know the pedigree is uh, important uh, of course in my work the female is always the most important because it's the one you took the seed from if you take a seed from a tomato and it's from that tom- tomato plant you know it came from that you can't always judge who the father is it could be self or it could be an outcross. And in case of uh, potatoes, there's a lot more outcrossing in the way of corn. There's a lot more cancer outcrossing. So I uh, I put a lot of importance on the female. I try to use the female as much as I can as the as the mother in many of my crosses, so I can follow the single seed descent down from that known clone. So yeah, it's important to have lots of notes. And so many of my tomatoes have have gone back. You know, there were 100 or more varieties in the pedigree. So you can imagine it's almost like going on to Ancestry.com and say, well, you know, 30% of my pedigree is from Germany, 10% from Russia, 2% from the Netherlands. You know what I mean? It can be quite interesting to to follow the pedigree and then figure out what it actually combined down to, to where it shows its heritage. I thought one fun thing that we might do would be to name some of your varieties, particularly those that are better known and talk a little bit about what went into creating those varieties. Oh, well, the, the most the most famous, of course, the green zebra. If you want to know a little story on that, I could tell you a, a quick little story how that came about. Yeah, absolutely. You want to hear it? You want, you want yeah. to hear it, huh? I, I think well, the people want the, to hear it. Yeah, back in the 50s, I was collecting the tomato seed from different places, uh, and I realized, you know, in order to create new varieties, you have to have more than one variety to start with. I can create lots of varieties, which is two varieties. Cross them, get the hybrid, save the seed to F2, F3, F4 generation, and start selecting almost an innumerable number of uh, of uh, progenies that by single seed descent to where they're stable, no longer segregating. You can create all kinds of varieties from two. But if you have a, a dozen, oh, my gosh, it just goes up. It's almost like 12 times 12 minus 12 to get the number of variations of crosses. And then the recombinant used to go 
sky high. You can't even imagine how far they go back. But in the 50s, I was collecting from wherever I could get it. And uh, back in Kansas, you know, you'd get them from Earl Mays, uh, you know, uh, Henry Field, Gleckler, uh, Gleckler, where I got the evergreen variety. And the funny thing about the evergreen, it was so late. And I didn't know when it was ripe because it was a green tomato. How, how can you tell when a green tomato is ripe? And so, yeah, okay, I see. It would have turned soft. It must be ripe. But wait a minute, the evergreen really cracked bad, you know. Here you got a ripe tomato, it's soft to the touch, but it got cracked on it. You pick it, and you try to run through the house with it before it starts leaking all over the place, you know. And you finally get in the house, and it's leaking all over the kitchen floor, <laughs> you know. And you go to the sink, and then, oh, my God, you, there's a cracked part. It's starting to smell bad. It must have got rotted out there in the field. This isn't going to work. I need some crack resistance. So in order to get a better evergreen and some people still grow the evergreen in fact in that head hume uh, selection of heirloom varieties the evergreen's in there so the evergreen plus its descendant the green uh, zebras there also the um, lime green salad is in there but anyway i uh, i was uh went to church one day in atchison kansas and when we got out of church i stopped by the a local greenhouse there in atchison kansas they were growing tomatoes for sale Went in there, in there and I talked to the guy and he had several varieties. He was really excited about this one, you know. He said it didn't crack. Aha, I thought that's what I need. So I asked him what the variety was and he said it was Glamour, a new one out of uh, New York State. So I got to have some fruit, you know, to, to eat and, and of course to save seeds, you know. I'm, I'm rather sneaky that way. I like to pick up varieties and then save the seed from them. So anybody can do that. You can save seeds. So if you've got a fruit, save the seed. So I crossed the uh, glamour with the evergreen, and uh, guess what I got? I got one kind of tomato. It was a red tomato, and a crack. I was a failure. <laughs> but that was only the F1, right? That was the F1. But think about it. I wanted made improvement, and I didn't even get the green. I didn't. I didn't get crack resistant. I didn't get anything I wanted. Even the flavor was mm, not all that great to talk about. But it wasn't bad. But uh, it was crack and red and. Oh, good grief, you know, I'd do something. Oh, I know what you do. You save the seed. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. Save the seed, you know. If in doubt, save the seed. So it's kind of my motto, save the seed, you know, save the day, seed the day, whatever. Uh, just keep, keep saving the seed and uh, you'll you'll have something for the for a rainy day. And rainy days are always great for sowing seed in the, in the, in the late winter, early spring anyway. So uh, saving seed is, uh, is a great way to have uh, enjoyment later on the next year. So anyway, I, I dealt out the uh, seedlings to F2, planted them out, and the majority of them were, were red. A few were green, and most of the green ones cracked. So that second year, I was a failure. <laughs> There's a lot of failure in plant breeding. Yeah, yeah. so what do I do then? I save the seed. What's, which one do I save the seed from? Well, I could save seed from all of them, but I'm a kind of a particular nut i like to have single seed descent one plant one seed you know take it from there so save the seed from the green one that's cracked i planted those out <sighs> yes i got one that didn't crack a green one didn't crack and i call that the glamour evergreen and why did i call it the glamour evergreen because that showed the 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 way i cropped it glamour with the female evergreen was the male so G E, I wrote that down so many times I could I can almost cry, you know. G E G over E in the pedigree. G over E 
F1, then open pollinate F2, open pollinate F3, another mark off the side there, F4, open pollinate F5. Anyway, so I had a really great green tomato that didn't crack, but I'm always doing other crosses. So one time, I think I was in college, probably at this time, I drove up to uh, Ames, Iowa. That's where they have the uh, tomato collection. I think now that tomato collection is been moved over to Geneva, New York, I believe. Anyway, walking through the field, I was surprised to, to see so many plants, you know, and come to find out the superintendent uh, showed me the the inventory of seeds. The, the seeds were like in, in quart jars, gallon jars, and he showed me the jars where the seed was down kind of low. He said once the seed get kind of low in their inventory, they pull out a few seeds. So, you know, put transplants out in the field and save all the fruits and all the plants, bolt the seed, and then just dump it in on top of the old seed. Hmm, that's interesting. You, why would you dump it in on top of the old seed? Well, they didn't know what selection they wanted to make, so they didn't want to want to make any selections that would be, you know, noteworthy for somebody else, but they just want to keep the whatever natural diversity was theirs. But anyway, walked through the field, I found one plant, and I can't tell you now what the number was. I wrote it down somewhere. It's, uh, it's red fruit, had a slight little yellowy stripe on it. Not much, but it had a little, and I asked the superintendent if I could have that very fruit, you know, rather than go back to making a request out of the bulk jar. I wanted that very one, so he let me do that. I brought it home, planted it in the next year, grew out some plants, you know. They still didn't have much in the way of stripe, but guess what they did? They cracked. They, they did I was crack. Waiting. They did crack, you know, so I was, I was waiting for the shoe to, other shoe to fall. But anyway, cracking tomatoes. I hate cracking tomatoes. So I thought, well, I got to cross it with something that doesn't crack. So I was able to get get the germplasm out of Burgess Seed Company as one of a crack-proof, whatever, it was a cross out of crack-proof, a cross with something else. And I took that as my example of a, of a crack-proof tomato. I wanted to use some other kind of a germplasm with crack resistance, and I heard about this Burgess crack-proof, and I thought, hmm, if it's in the name, maybe it really means something. <laughs> so I crossed this tomato with this Burgess line, you know, and got a tomato that didn't have any type. And guess what it did? <laughs> well, it now cracked. I'm going to think it, it cracked. It, <laughs> it cracked, you know. I was Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, you know. He, he kept making crosses, but they all cracked, you know. Uh, <laughs> nursery rhymes, you know, gets, gets you by sometimes. Uh, sometimes you have to repeat those nursery rhymes just to have some sanity. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put that tomato back together again, but I can. <laughs> all I have to do is save the seed. You know, saving the seed, saving the seed. You know, it's such a, such a simple little thing to do. So I was able to uh, get a few that had a little more stripe to it and some that didn't crack, you know. So I just kept looking for some that... Uh, where the stripe was a little more evident. Now, this isn't the Tigerella that was already out there. This is a totally different line. Mm-hmm. So I got a red and yellow tomato that didn't crack, and I thought the flavor was pretty good. But I didn't stop there. I was going to cross it to something, so I crossed it to a whole bunch of things, like the Orange Jubilee. I crossed it to Better Boy. I crossed it to 
early two, I cropped it to, uh, well, later on, I cropped it to Tomboy. And I thought, well, I could crop it to this new, improved uh, Glamour Evergreen. I'll do that. So I made all these crosses, and just one of them I made, you know. And I haven't done it right thing. I made a cross of this crack-proof green and a crack-proof red and yellow type, and, and I got a hybrid that was ordinary red. At least it didn't crack, but it was just an ordinary red. Big deal. <laughs> I'm a failure. I'm going to die. You know, I'm like a good doctor. I'm going to die. <laughs> i got to start all over again. So what do I do? I save the seed. I'm going to have to. And oh my gosh, you know, this driving just showed up like crazy in, in this next few generations. And I was getting greened with drive, but I was getting drives that were maybe 10% of the fruit with drive. Some were like 60%. Others were like 90% drives. The dark green drives almost were totally engulfed the tomato. But I kept thinking the one that uh, looked better is the uh, one that just was about 60% ripe. So I grew them in the, in the field, tasted them, but grew them in the greenhouse, tasted them. Most of them in the greenhouse didn't have much flavor. And, of course, you know what greenhouse tomatoes are. They're, they're tasteless. But this one wine had great flavor, and I thought it had a great tang. And I liked the 60% ripe, so that's when I said the key word, Eureka. The Green Zebra. <laughs> it, it had to rhyme, Eureka the Green Zebra. And uh, I was so excited, and uh, it was uh, so funny. I built this little greenhouse on the end of the, the garage, you know, where my mom and dad lived when they were building the house. Anyway, uh, she came by when I was out there picking tomatoes and seen the, the door open up shut. I mean, so she shut the door, lapped it, you know, and I'm... He went back in the house, so here I am inside the greenhouse with this green zebra in my hand, excited as all get out, you know, and there's the doors locked. <laughs> so I start, so I, I do what any silly person would do, just start yelling, you know, for help. And you know, we were only, we, were, we lived in a farm, you know, but across the road, uh, Charles Taylor, you know, heard me. So I <laughs> come across from his house, clear across the road, and up the driveway come to the greenhouse to see what all the yelling was about. So anyway, Charles Taylor, my, my neighbor, got to see the green zebra, the first person to see it beside myself, you know. So he's not around anymore, but I'm glad that he got to see it, my neighbor. And I'm glad that you got out of the greenhouse. Yeah. So anyway, the, the funny how tomatoes uh, come about, you know. Uh, uh, somebody has to do it. And anybody could probably have done it, but they didn't. I did it. So uh, my my my... Claim the fame. Uh, it's 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 rather nebulous. It's 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 almost half fame and half shame. Um, so I'm not really, I'm not trying to get a big hit about it, but it's just uh, interesting what somebody can do. You know, is it's uh, puttering around with it, uh, spending many generations of uh, crossing and saving seed, taking four varieties, and making uh, a brand new variety out of it, something that didn't exist before. And I think that's what's so interesting about taking a variety that are today would be called heirloom. You know, take four heirlooms and make a new heirloom. So I'm I'm uh, encouraged by that, and I like to encourage other people to uh, take this example, a story, the history of it, as, as something to make them feel like they could do it too. How old were you when you created the Green Zebra? Well, this has been going on since the 1950s, you know, the collection of the uh, evergreen. So this was about, 
1973, I believe, when I finally got the, the, the classic selection, I called the Green Zebra. It was coming about before then, but uh, I, it, uh, well, about a 15-year period of, of breeding work and selection. So, yeah, it, uh, it takes a while. Right, and how many plants would you say you had to grow to get to that point? Oh, hundreds of plants, hundreds and hundreds of plants, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so 15 years, hundreds of plants, and one green zebra. Yeah, yeah. and the funny thing is, I didn't save the other kinds of green zebras, you know. I have other, I have other combinations that, that were reciprocal crosses uh, that were, were, were saved. But uh, the the brothers and sisters of this, I didn't I didn't say. Well, I did say the seeds are just probably something in the inventory where they where they won't germinate anymore. But at least I I did that, and then uh, I, I bred up other varieties. It wasn't just that, you know. But uh, sure. breeding up things that were not just red tomatoes was was a uh, was an issue for me because I figured, you know, why why breed up something that looked like something that's already been around there. Were there other striped tomatoes at that period of time, or was it uh, was that a new development? Well, in in my de- uh, work, I was able to get to Tigerella, and I realized that stripe just isn't there. I used Tigerella in crosses, and it just wasn't wasn't what I wanted. So I created other striped tomatoes. That's when I just, uh, created the the Brown Derby series, which is a striped brown flesh type. I had the Alberta Girl, which is a woolly, folded, fuzzy, peak like tomato, red and yellow striped. I had, uh, oh, that's when I was breeding the uh, elongated tomatoes, uh, the one that went into the banana lake, you know, came out of similar crossing. And uh, I had innumerable number of lines that I've used for for different uh, examples of what I'm trying to do there. And it wasn't until I released my tater major seed catalog in 1983 that it uh, went all wild, crazy for people who collected things that were different. A lot of people have grown green zebra. Do you know if anyone has used it as the basis to breed other notable new varieties? Yep, yep, yep. It's uh, it's it's just, it's almost a grandfather of variety. Uh, Jeff Dawson down in California had the green zebra planted next to the marble stripe, and he had a. And save the seed out of the green zebra, and anything that green zebra crossed to is going to show up because there won't be a green zebra because green zebra is so full of recessives, there's no way for it to be outcrossed. And mistaken for a green zebra, it's just not going to be. So he was able, Jeff Dawson's able to get the uh, the varieties that were famous down there in, in California. I can't even think of the names of them, but uh, um, you might think of one, but the, the, the wineries also push down there. And uh, some other people, uh, Brad Gates uh, had green zebra planted, and he started getting the crosses. So, I mean, he got all kinds of Berkeley tie-dye and, and numerous other in line. Another person that got into a striped tomato is uh, Fred Hempel. Um, I gave him a whole bunch of seed 2003 when I was living in uh, the Sacramento area. And he went back to the Berkeley, California area and grew up and things. And he released a good number of variety in which the stripe uh, came out of my line. But he had mother, you know, came out of banana leg. And uh, uh, so he, he was able to independently uh, access my striping and develop the line. So, yeah, a lot of people have uh, accidentally created uh, varieties out of the green zebra because it was so 
got hybridized and oh my God, there, there you can get all kinds of variety just save just eat save just eat and you get new variety that must be a great feeling though to have other people kind of continuing to build on your work and creating new varieties that are going on into the future yep it's a it's a longevity of somebody's work when somebody can copy it i mean you don't have to do it yourself and uh, just think about it all these People will probably grow in zebra, green zebras, and others uh, well beyond my lifetime. So, I mean, how many people can die and, and leave some up behind? I'm, I'm gratified by it. Awesome. So I thought we might also talk about a couple of potatoes because uh, it's, it's a really different uh, kind of breeding in general. And I have, I have two in mind that I, I think probably represent uh, fairly different processes for you, one of which is Skagit Valley Gold, and the other is Azul Toro. Would you like to talk a little bit about those and, and what went into the breeding? The Skagit Valley Gold, named for the Skagit uh, Valley River, the Skagit River in western Washington. Um, this is a variety that uh, primarily the germplasm uh, originated in Colombia, South America, primarily Phelanomphoria types, the diploid, that have great flavor but really bad dormancy. Uh, so many of the farmers in traditional farming in Colombia and the highlands, uh, oh, 5,000, 10,000, 11,000 feet, uh, grow the Faria varieties, and they dig them, and then they plant them back right away because the dormancy is so short, they're already starting to break dormancy and start sprouting almost before the harvest did. So these kind of varieties are, are difficult to grow here, as you well know, Bill. The Phelanum uh, Faria are... are notorious for short dormancy, but uh, the flavor make up for it. So breeding varieties that had this deep yellow, almost orange flesh were a, a real challenge for me. How do I get some longer dormancy? So I was taking some varieties from the Papa Maria types, the Yema de Huevo variety, uh, varieties from Chuck Brown, who was in Peru for many years, collected the uh, Faria type variety, and crossing in with a uh, with an isolated haploid of tuberosum in order to get some uh, dormancy and some other quality, a little bit of russeting that shows up in the pedigree uh, as they segregate. But the thing about Gadgetelli Gold is that it uh, it's a small potato, really gets over the size of an egg. It has a fairly heavy set. It uh, yields well. It keeps well in the ground has a great flavor, and in fact, at the Thurgeon Bay, Wisconsin Potato Introduction Station, the Cajabella Gold in a blind test was deemed the best flavor variety out of all the Papa Maria types that they had tested. So I'm pretty uh, uh, gratified the fact that I have a potato that is, uh, is independently deemed a high flavor. It also is a potato that has quick cooking times, and this is incredibly important. We worry about potatoes, you know, as they're fried in oil, excreting uh, carcinogens and whatnot. Why not just get potatoes that cook fast and cook them conventionally like in boiling water, microwave, you know, roasting, but uh, treat them uh, more like food rather than, uh, than hardware. I think it's particularly worth pointing out that you developed a Fereja-type potato that 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 not only won a taste test, but at the same time has reasonably good dormancy and that someone can grow in North America. It, I, it's amazing that you accomplished both things in one variety. 
it's uh, incredibly important, and uh, just uh, just uh, working with other plant breeders, picking up their material, and, and taking it to the next step. Uh, one of the nice things about my work is that ever since the 1970s, I until about 2004, I was able to access first-year seedling family, a first-year seedling tuber family, where they make uh, hundreds of crosses, and then they put up to hundreds or more seedlings of each cross, and then they harvest the single tuber and put it in a bag to represent, you know, that family. So if there's 100 seedlings, they got 100 tubers in a bag, planted out. I was usually able to access the the C's and D size, in other words, the smallest and most expendable line. And so for the 1970s to the early 2000s, 30-year period of time of collecting first-year seedling lines, I'm able to find varieties that uh, have different attributes that wouldn't be selected as a commercial variety, and but would have berries, and the potato berry is so important in my work. People ask me, what's the most important thing in a potato? And I say, a berry. If it doesn't have a berry, I may not name it, which is kind of ironic. Why would you want a potato that has berries? Well, how am I going to keep it? I can't keep a variety forever in a clone growing it year after year. The tubers, you know, they pick up viruses, uh, uh, wilts, uh, uh, oh my goodness, gab, whatnot. And I just hate to be typhoid Mary planting back something year after year that has virus X, virus Y, uh, is susceptible to all kinds of gab and rhizoctonia, you know. I, I like to convert things to true seed because I can't keep a tuber forever, but I can keep seed for the rest of my life. Right. But of course, I think it's worth pointing out because that may have confused some people when you shave the seeds. I, I, hope, of, uh, I, hope it, I hope it does. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I hope it does confuse people because this is not a simple science. It's a, this is a, the plant breeding is, 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 a, is a philosophy. It's a way of life. It, uh, it's a the road less traveled and it, it doesn't, it's not going to come clear, crystal clear to anybody exactly what are you doing. So uh, sure. I don't care if it's not clear to somebody. <laughs> well, but but we can help in this case. So I, I just want to point out that saving the seeds of potatoes is not going to get you the same potato ever. It's going to get you a potato that has the same kinds of genes from which you might be able to select again a similar variety. It is it, it is so much fun to, to, to tease people. Tomatoes, you save the seed. Normally, if they're just an open pollinated line, it'll come true. Potatoes, you save the seed. You're all over the place, especially if they're tetraploid. And then diploid, they're all over the place because they're self-incompatible. They can't self-self their own flowers. They have to get pollen from another diploid in order to have a berry form and seed. So it's constantly keeping the germplasm diverse. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it's not the old-fashioned tomato, that's for sure. It's a completely different kind of breeding, right? It's it's fun because you have access to such great diversity, but also frustrating because it's so much harder to focus in on exactly the traits that you want to achieve. Yep. I, I, it, it's been a fun game for me my whole life, you know, just playing around with this stuff, seeing what I can come up with. And, and it, uh, it's, it's more of a game, more of a pastime, more of a, a lifestyle than it is a, a money-making thing. I've made very little money over my years of doing this work. It's just uh, create, 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 and uh, uh, put stuff away, put it away, put it away. But after all these years, I got a germplasm uh, seed bank that's probably uh, worth something. 
Well, certainly. I mean, it's, you know, you've, you've engaged in selling seed on and off, and I, I think you definitely have a lot of, uh, a lot of fans out there who, uh, who, who, who are always waiting to see if your store will open again so they have another shot at it, right? That's true. I, when I had my first release back in 1983, I kept it going from 83 to 1986, and then I started in again, what was it, 2010 or 2011, had it going mm-hmm. for about three or four years. Uh, and my, my friend, Rob Wagner, no relation. We, we opened up the, the TaterMater, uh, uh, seed, uh, website. It was first called new world crops and tuber. And then it finally went to TaterMater seed. Um, it's difficult to keep our website open and, and keep all the, the payment plans and the, the, the printing orders and, and having a shipping order and, and all the documents that you have to do that with and then sending it around the world and it, it's so much more difficult to send seed overseas uh, you can't send seed to a lot of countries now to, to get held up so yeah I, I got to find a new dynamic new paradigm of, of creating home for these uh for these seeds for the next generation yeah so let's uh let's return to skagit valley gold for a bit um so you you gave us the background on that potato. It's a it's a diploid of you know or or it came from diploids of Colombian origin. And what was involved in the breeding process to get from those Fereja types to this to this variety that has now some good dormancy and also retains that that uh, Fereja flavor. Well, I know a number of years ago I had Chuck Brown uh, uh, taste the Cadetella uh, Gold, and he was impressed with it. Uh, Chuck Brown and I are among the few people who figure, you know, flavor has to be determined by a raw potato sample. And I am constantly trying potatoes out as raw potato samples out in the dirt. I'm like Curgio. I probably had plenty of dirt in my diet over the years, just <laughs> biting the end out of a tuber to see if it has the bitterness of the glycoalkaloids, if it has its, has its sweetness or if it has, you know, a, a particular flavor you know, that can be detected after chomping down on it. Um, the the thing about uh, potatoes is that uh, we, we don't normally eat them raw, but we, we could. I think hors d'oeuvres of radishes and celery and raw potato slices should be included, you know, just to get people to try potatoes in a, in a different fashion. But Chuck Brown was responsible for some of the breeding work, um, uh, and I just uh, furthered it with some other uh, breeding lines, you know, that I had. So it, uh, that had about uh, 10 or more years of breeding work uh, put into it from the 90s into the early uh, 2000s. And uh, had a single hill I brought from California to Gadget County back in 2004. And by 2007, I had two acres of this Gadget Valley Gold from that single hill of that I planted out in uh, in 2004. So that that was interesting. And in the meanwhile, I cleaned it up potato culture and grew it as a nuclear generation tea potato. But because I was such an unknown, I didn't have a place to to sell it, and I wasn't uh, prepared uh, 2007 or 2008 to sell tea potatoes. So I basically lost that momentum. I, even at that time that I was certifying. Gold. I certified a red potato that I really like called the Nordic October. And of all things, I had certified lumper. And that's the old Irish <laughs> potato 
bred up in the early 1800s was uh, almost the uh, the number one potato anybody grew in in Ireland for 50 years. But when the late blight resistance uh, broke down and the new blight came in, it uh, collapsed and rotted in the field, rotted in the storage. So um, I tried to bring the lumper back and, uh, and do some other work with it crossing. But I wanted people to to see the lumper. Uh, it's a beautiful potato. I have lots of pictures of it, and it's uh, one of my key breeding lines. So, um, but the good news is that the uh, the breeding lines, you know, are put away a true seed. I have millions of seeds of all of those lines uh, in different crosses and whatnot. Put away a TPS. True potato seed, PPS, that's a hard term for people to get PPS. They just don't catch that right away. It's not an acronym they understand. But true potato seed or true botanical seed is the best way to preserve diversity. And how long do you keep potato seeds for in your collection? Well, I sowed uh, seed just last week that was from 2004. That's getting kind of old, and I don't have perfect storage conditions. I store most of my potatoes in, in uh, sandwich bag Ziplocs and uh, put it away that way. And I take a, a sheet of uh, typing paper or computer paper, cut it into four pieces, and write down the information on it. It's perfect size. I set down in a, in a Ziploc. And so I'm constantly throwing old seed. Uh, old seed that's uh, 14 years old might be a little slower to germinate. It uh, might have poor germination, but uh, I can usually uh, coax some, some of the seed to germinate. I prefer to have seed that's uh, uh, two or more years old. It'll germinate faster. I think Curtio mentioned that uh, fresh seed doesn't germinate as well as two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old seed. It's pretty much the case. And... Um, that's just part of the the science of this that we all have to learn if we're going to involve ourselves with potato research and growing potatoes from true potato seed, which I think will grow and grow as the years go along. I think you're right. I think it's already grown tremendously uh, in just really the past 10 years. 10 years ago, when I was starting to grow potatoes from seed, I could find almost no information on the internet, or, or even really in, in, in most books. Books would say something like, you can save seeds from a potato, but they'll be worthless, so don't waste your time. And that has that has completely changed in the past 10 years. There's yeah. tons of information available for somebody who wants to get started, and a lot of that most, comes from you. <laughs> it's so, so much of that is, is so true, because commercial potato breeders, most of them are university-sponsored uh, people, like in uh, Aberdeen, Idaho, up in North Dakota, uh, parts of Texas, uh, USDA at Beltville, Maryland, they make these family crosses and uh, they put out their seedling uh, tubers the next year. And they, they do a lot of screening. They're looking for that needle and eight that, that one potato out of a million that might work at the commercial variety. They're, they mm-hmm. streamline it down so close that no wonder nobody wants to go into uh, potato breeding because their selection criteria, you know, discourage everybody from what they thought they could get. But there's so much diversity that who cares if the plant is a little bit late in maturity? Who cares if it's a little bit lumpy? Who cares if it's small potato and not a bacon side? So if it's small potato is better anyway. So there's so many new traits that a person that a person could look for. Why 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 worry about the fact that you can't do it? Yeah, you can do it. Right. Well, I, I think that's really one of the, the main uh, interests that I have in this podcast is exploring 
the freelance plant breeding world where the where the criteria for variety development are so much different than they are for big agriculture right we care about yep. much different things than someone cares about if they're developing say a potato for processing that has to be grown by the hundreds or thousands of acres i've had potato that i've created that were grown at, at certified seed up here in uh, in Washington State, we're both in Washington State, by the way, uh, Wascom County, where they grow certified seed, and I had some of my variety grown in truckload quantity uh, down in Bakersfield, California, from seed potato grown in Wascom County near Linwood, or Linden rather, Linden, Washington, mm-hmm. and um, uh, some of those, uh, the tomboy, for example, which is a Houston Gold type, uh, was grown. Also, my Kern Toro were grown commercially. And some of those potatoes had very unique uh, flavor profiles. And what Kern County was trying to do is uh, get improved reds over the red Lithota, get uh, improved yellow over the Yukon Gold, um, those kind of things, and, uh, and to get better blues than the all blue. So I had several varieties that were grown truckload quantities uh, down there sold not as their own branded name variety, but as Yukon Gold or as Red Lithotas or just basically red potatoes or yellow potato. Um, mm-hmm. I could not get the grower and the merchandiser, the distributor, to use name identification variety-wise. So that's still to come. One of the things I still like to do with my variety, get the uh, commercial grower or at least get the restaurant supply people involved with uh, making the uh, identified clone varieties uh, popular and get them into the grocery store where they can be identified with the variety, just like apples are. I'd love for a potato to, to have an ever-changing variety makeup in the, in the grocery store, have 10, 20 varieties of potatoes all displayed. I'd love to see that. Right. This is one of the things that I talked about with Curzio. I, I think it's it's going to require a real push in terms of education to get there because, again, most people don't really realize that there are important differences between potato varieties. They think one potato is pretty much the same as another. One reason, I might as well just add this, uh, one reason why I'm not uh, so present in the seed sales of TPS is that I've been doing some independent work with Montana State University, Bozeman, uh, creating varieties that have a different uh, starch makeup instead of so high in amylopectin starch, higher in amylose starch. Amylose starch is uh, resistant starch. It's not digested by the human body, not recognized as energy. It doesn't go into sugars and, and you know, create a, a weight problem. Uh, amylose is, is, uh, is, is a fiber, the way the human body feeds it. So I'm increasing varieties that uh, naturally had a higher ratio of uh, amylose to amylopectin. And then at the same time, I have the varieties that are higher in protein, especially lysine, and uh, testing some of these for tryptophan as well. And I have some of the varieties that I've been growing that are, that are unique in, uh, in, the, in the mouth feel and that have a great flavor component. <clears throat> the flavor component, I think, is, is so important along with the low glycemic index level of the potatoes is that we can get potatoes finally that we can eat in any number and quantity 
and not have to be as healthy because there's so much uh, worry about diabetics, you know, type 2 diabetics. You know, we need to control weight of school kids, of older people. We need to make potatoes more healthy, and we can get potatoes that cook in less time that have more protein. And some of the potatoes I'm eating out of my own breeding work here have what I call the uber umami. You know, there's super flavor that comes from umami meat-like flavoring to where the lysine is obviously evident. And I guess my my talent is that uh, I like to taste food. And I'm from the Midwest, from Kansas, and, uh, you know, spices weren't used so much, so we didn't use hot peppers of any kind, you know, so everything was very mild, meat and potatoes. And so anything that has flavor is more recognized, and that, that's kind of where I look at potatoes. We could more accurately measure potatoes. We don't put anything on them, just boil them or steam them, bake them, you know, roast them, and eat them as plain as possible to enjoy that flavor. So I have all the clones I'm working with this year with the low glycemic, higher protein, higher flavor level, and I'm hoping to keep these things going. And uh, I guess for that reason, because I have so much work to do, I really would like to have some help. People who are interested in plant breeding would love to learn about plant breeding and help me uh, do this work, uh, become an assistant with me or or do some cooperative work. I'm constantly looking for, for kind of an outreach on this. And I think because of my track record, I think people can uh, believe me. And, and what I like to do is train people on how to detect flavors in potatoes. I do it all my old-fashioned uh, mouse feel not rely on lab tests. Of course, the lab tests will prove it, but I think uh, just developing the skills to, to, to find, you know, the unique, you know, value-added traits, you know, of things that we give up for uh, junk food. Yeah, you made a really interesting comment earlier about the fact that you don't just, you don't just taste your potatoes raw, but that you think tasting them raw is more useful in determining their characteristics than, than tasting them cooked. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, the, the first thing you want to do is make sure they don't have the alkaloid, the uh, solanine, the glycoalkaloid, the toxin that uh, protect the potato from insects mm-hmm. and whatnot. Potatoes have this natural level of glycoalkaloid to be somewhat toxic to chewing uh, insects. Uh, that that toxin can occur in the leaves or can occur in the tuber. I try to keep the glycoalkaloid very low in the tuber because we have to eat these. Many old traditional heirloom varieties, and I'm sure Curzio has had some that are higher in alkaloids and would normally be accepted. One of the classic potatoes that was knocked off the market, Lenape, was uh, being too high in alkaloid, so they dropped it at the name variety and put it back to B5141 based, uh, whatever, 7R, what was that base one? Anyway, uh, they put them, took it back to the original number. But the lefty was a, a, a great potato, and I use it a lot of my breeding work. Uh, the Sul Toro, coming back to another variety I bred up, has the mm-hmm. lenape as its grandparent. And, and nobody wanted to use lenape for breeding work after that scare of the glycoalkaloid. Oh, 50% of the progeny of lenape will have high levels of glycoalkaloid. You can't grow that. People will, will die, <laughs> you know, eating potato high in glycoalkaloid. They can't, oh, don't do TPS because you may have a glycoalkaloid, so you can't do that. You'll die. You know, I feel like a good doctor. You're going to die. Yep. 
I think you'd have to eat an awful lot in order to die. You would have to eat an awful lot. And, but the whole thing is that, so like for those 50% of Atlanta Crosses that don't have the high alkaloid, you'll be fine. You know, or just keep crossing until you find one that doesn't have the alcohol and you'll be, you'll be fine. What's so nice about Lenape is it has nice large seed. The true potatoes of Lenape is large compared to other varieties. So that kind of background, tuberosum, chocoensi background of Lenape is so important to increase the size of the seed of TPS so that you can grow their seedling and have a larger cotyledon where you can get a stronger plant growing TPS from regular potatoes. So they're, they're so tiny that they're too weak for the average person to even contemplate trying to transplant it or get it growing. They just give up. It's just too weak looking. And almost everybody starts their TPS too early in the, in the spring. It's just still cold and dark out and the plants get thinly and then they get too old by the time they put it out in the field. They're not getting the first year seedling to fully produce its potential. I can do transplant the TPS and get a full potential the first year not have to worry about growing those tubers out to plant again. But uh, anyway, Azul Toro, what is that one? It's a variety that uh, that Curzio has, and a lot of people like it, and some of my grower friends liked it much better than the All Blue and the uh, Purple Majesty. Azul Toro is a cross between, uh, it's a, it's a cross between Negro y Azul and Current Toro, two varieties that I had commercialized in Kern County, California. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one has a very low alkaloid. It has the blue skin of the Azul Negro Iazul. Negro Iazul means black and blue in Spanish. And uh, the Kern Toro, I just named it for the Kern County. So anyway, Azul Toro is a, uh, not quite as blue as the mother parent, but it's uh, pretty nice. Chinese blue skin, really nice size. It's good, uh, good eating potato. It's a good uh, early potato, much earlier than than either the parent. It went back to Lenape, uh, the grand grandfather plant there, to uh, grandmother, I should say. I like to keep the pedigree right. Um, so I, I was able to make that a promising variety, and I'm, I'm glad that it's kept as an early variety now. People think it's a new variety, but it's been around for, guess what, 20 years. <laughs> so it's not. So it's almost an heirloom. Yeah, it's going to be an heirloom before it becomes released, you know. <laughs> I think uh, I, I think Carol Deppi also made this variety popular, right? Didn't she talk about it in her yeah, book? Yeah, she, she had the, the Resilient Gardener, has a very popular book that, that kind of followed up her How to Breed Your Own Vegetable Variety. And Bill, Mitchell Whitman, I think you read Carol Deppi's book and part of why you're interested in plant breeding. Is that correct? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, that's that's really what got me started on this path. So when I talk of the three people who were most influential on me, you're one of them, and, and Carol Deppi is another. Carol Deppi is an interesting character. She's about my age, a uh, similar type of uh, uh, gen- genetic background, you know, and uh, she, she has a, a very uh, simple diet, you know, eating cornbread and squash, pumpkins, uh, squash, and uh, potatoes. And uh, I was at her house down there in Corvallis, and she brought out some cornbread that she had made. And I said, oh, it tastes just like Reed Yellow Dent. And she, <laughs> she looked at me with the most quizzical look. How did you know? And, and I had grown Reed Yellow Dent as an as a open-pollinated field corn in Kansas and had a demonstration with it with Missouri Western State College, you know, the field of uh, 
Rebuild a dent taken from a single package of 50 feed. It was planted, and I'd, uh, I would uh, cross-pollinize by hand, you know, of those 50 feet, make sure it didn't, any of them get self-pollinized. So I crossed the first 25 of one row to the 25 of the other, and then vice versa. So I was able to to pull out whatever genetic diversity was there in that 50 seed sample and, and uh, you know, have enough seed to, to plant a nice little, little plot of it. So, uh, the, Carol Deppy is uh, interesting, you know, she's a PhD, she taught uh, genetic, and uh, she's been instrumental in getting people to look at plant breeding as a, as a backyard hobby. So I, I do have to thank her for that, and she is very high on the uh, seed initiative, you know, getting people that, that grow variety to keep them a, a pledge, you know, of sort, to make sure they remain part of the open source, keeping them from being owned by the big company, uh, the Monsanto is a big uh, seed conglomerate that own varieties. And I guess I'm in favor of that too, you know, keep seeds as free as possible, keep them with the people, with the gardener, where they can trade them, not worry about it being owned by anything, anybody. And uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of wind in that sail right now. Uh, trying to get, uh, trying to keep variety with the people is going to be a battle. And I got more things to say about that. Right. Well, so what we're talking about is the open source seed initiative. And Carol Deppie's on the, on the board of that. And uh, I, I think one of the great things that comes out, I, you know, it's, it's hard to guess how legally defensible open source seeds will be, right? But I think one of the best things that comes out of the open source seed initiative is that this pledge goes with every packet of seeds that gets sold of a variety that's, that's been pledged. And that's a reminder to people that somebody actually bred this variety, right? If over the years that had gone with, with all of your seeds, then people would be more likely to remember not only that, that this is a product of, of a particular breeder, but also more likely to rec- remember who did it. It's, it's funny, you know, all the varieties I've created, there's probably about uh, 200 varieties of tomatoes that I've created and released uh, out there. A good number more by the Cocopelli uh, feed people in, mm-hmm. in Europe. But uh, they're scattered among, I think, A.P. Whaley, Aaron Whaley, the son of Kent and Diane Whaley. He has about 10 of my variety, and uh, he, he grows them uh, for wholesale sales. And then there's other catalog feed companies that sell it, like Rare Seeds or Baker Creek that sells my blue-green, uh, Wagner blue-green, and a couple other varieties. But uh, of all of the varieties that I've created over the years, uh, only adaptive seed out of Oregon has ever sent me a, any kind of a royalty. I think it was like $10 on a couple of varieties they sold. But mm-hmm. here, all the varieties I created, I'm, I'm like, uh, I, I'm not part of the uh, the thank you. You know, I, I may get credit. I may, uh, they may uh, say my name, but uh, I don't get any royalties from this. Uh, we may have to change it someday so that plant breeders can, can get a little something, you know, for all their work. Seed sales are not going to make anybody rich. Anybody who's in it is uh, still going to stay relatively poor compared to any other job they might have. So it's, it's, it's a tough deal. That's one reason why I guess I'm kind of hanging on to my newer varieties uh, until I can find a more uh, 
equitable way to uh, release them and uh, help uh, support my research and that kind of thing. When you don't get any royalties, it's hard to, to keep the work going. Right. As you might expect, I have strong opinions on the subject, but uh, I, I think, you know, I think you, there, you can approach this from multiple levels, but I think one of them is very easy, and that, and that, that is that giving people credit for what they've bred costs you nothing. And so that's, at the very minimum, at the that's very good. minimum, you ought to give people credit for having created that seed that you're selling in your catalog. But there, but there's also more of a grassroots movement that that uh, has sprung up in the past few years for people to um, give each other royalties on seeds that have been developed. You know, I, I've seen Joseph Lofthouse doing that, and and a number of other smaller seed organizations are, uh, you know, people are are collaborating to make sure that that uh, that some amount of that sales price gets gets shared with the breeder and they're doing it voluntarily but I, I think that's great right we need to encourage more of that we don't necessarily need all the legal mechanisms that exist in the in the big agricultural seed world but there are things that we can do even if voluntarily that can that can make a big difference for people i i've been trying to promote the idea of, of countries and places anywhere where they're growing seed to keep seed-free, you know, among their local adaptive area. And several countries uh, come to mind uh, that I'd like to do more work with. Uh, the Philippines, for example, the fellow down there by name of Jojo Rom, he's trying to promote the idea of using uh, just reusable containers, you know, that are normally just thrown away, compost materials in your backyard, grow it in these small containers, in a shade house or greenhouse and, and, and grow things. And I've been trying to get him to work with me to create uh, kind of a cottage industry of a variety of tomatoes and even potatoes that can be grown in small quantities and get seed where they can sell that seed to their neighbors and whatnot. Because uh, selling the produce from a small little greenhouse may be rather limited, but true seed, uh, you know, you could make a little more money on that. Plus, you're also able to distribute seed. And uh, the one lady in uh, the Philippines who's a proponent of organic gardening, you may know her name. Her name is Daisy Langenager. She's a Filipina married to a Swiss man. She's been promoting organics in, uh, in that country. And that so many countries are, are using way too many uh, commercial fertilizers and, and chemical sprays and Herbicide. We need to uh, encourage the people who support organic agriculture to be more well known. The only country in the world that is, has a negative carbon footprint is Bhutan, up in the Himalayas, and they want to by 2020, which is coming just up real soon, to be almost entirely organic. Their country, uh, you know, has a motto of their gross national happiness. And they want to have uh, part of that happiness to have sustainability, to protect the environment, and to have uh, a government that is uh, equitable, and to have organic gardening uh, inspectors free of charge to the grower. Most growers in that country have only two acres, and uh, you know they don't have the money to spend for a certification. And I'd like to see the approach that they're doing to be totally organic, to eliminate herbicide, spray, and all that kind of thing. They've been pretty much organic for many, many years, uh, 
and I'd like to keep it that way. For example, what's important about Bhutan in, in 1960, when I was just a teenager, the life expectancy in Bhutan was 32 years of age. But now that they've got potatoes as their number one vegetable that they eat, besides rice and corn, their life expectancy now is 70 years of age, and it's going to go up to 75 shortly. That's a very nice thing to happen to people who, who are growing something that I love to grow, potatoes. But I like to see them grow something besides just Desiree potatoes. So I'd love to get some students that, that are farmers, sons and daughters to come to this country, learn plant breeding from me, go back there and perform plant breeding, you know, as a localized, you know, money-making part-time business. Too many kids, uh, 15 to 29, they've left the farm and not going back. They're getting college degrees. They can't find jobs. They don't want to go back to farming because it's, it's structurally, traditionally too much hard work. But if they were in the seed business, uh, growing and breeding variety, that would make a big difference for them. So I'd love to be able to train those people. So if there are people out there that want me to help a country that is negative on the carbon footprint, hey, this is uh, this is an opportunity to put your money where your mouth is. So I think we really need to help countries stay organic. South of Bhutan, what country do you think is south of Bhutan? I'm just asking this to the public. They may not know. A very popular country. What country is it? Uh, I'm actually not sure, but I would say India. India, and they have a tremendous population. And they love potatoes from Bhutan because it's clean, it's not polluted. In India, in the last 20 years, guess how many farmers, you can look this up, you can look this up, how many farmers in India have committed suicide in the last 20 years? Yeah, it's really been a terrible epidemic. Yeah, because of fertilizer, because of all these things, you know, and they lose their crop because they depend on all the chemicals and the banking that they owe so much money if they have a crop there, they commit suicide. So in the last 20 years, 200,000 farmers have committed suicide just south of Bhutan. We don't want that to go into Bhutan. We want to protect them. So, hey, people, if you have an advocacy, talk about how to keep a country pure on sustainability and grow things organically, have their own local variety. Please help. And potatoes are a great choice for this, right? Because because potatoes historically, you know, potatoes developed in the Andes, and historically they were grown without any high inputs and in relatively poor soil, right? So we've only, we've only made them dependent upon synthetic fertilizers really in the past hundred years. That's right. Uh, when, when Bhutan opened up in 1960, they let the fertilizer come in and they had all kinds of problems. And, and it's only the people who are live way away from the main road. You have to walk all day or maybe two days just to get to their farm. Those are people who are staying organic. We need to keep them uh, independent of the world social justice, as they're calling it, and I'm sorry to use that word, but uh, they don't want uh, child labor to occur. I think child labor, if it's on a family farm, it's okay. Right now, kids are sent to school where they're housed in the school, and they don't even see their parents till school's out, and they can't go home to help harvest potatoes because they're in school. Uh, we need to encourage these kids to come back to their locality and have part-time job growing seeds and stuff like that. And, that's they're very important. And right now, basically, they're growing. Desiree is a great variety for worldwide adaptation. 
they grow it and take it down to the India border and they sell it. Uh, farmers markets uh, on the southern border of Bhutan are sold out by seven o'clock in the morning because their their produce is so much better than what they have in India. And uh, I want to be, and uh, this is where I, you know, help me protect that country. Uh, to, uh, help me put together, you know, kind of a, a foundation to to teach people how to do this. Uh, help me bring uh, some of the students over here to learn plant breeding, so that I can go back and with them and, and help set up breeding operations. The thing about the Bhutan, it's a, it's a country about the size of West Virginia, less than uh, 700,000 uh, people. They have all the climates in the world. They have sub they have sub they have tropical humid. Uh, tropical climate clear up to the, the no cap mountain they have every climate in the world in their little country they have all the the season they could grow potatoes uh, down on the india border and then send them up to the north uh, or grow them in the north send them down south and grow them there's, there's only about two thousand farms so hey there's a great opportunity here to to breed potatoes you know in sight similar to colombia you know with the high altitude and, and uh, create potatoes, uh, including the Faria type with short dormancy, which are okay because then that would be perfect for seed stock. They wouldn't have to worry about storing the seed potatoes. They just plant in another locality almost as soon as they harvest. And uh, with a little bit of dormancy, it might help them in the long run. And I think you and I, Mr. Whitson, would, would see a, a need for this to help a country like Bhutan stay uh, truly sustainable protect the environment, and to use uh, local uh, weeds and, and forest products, you know, as part of the fertilizer uh, or the fields, you know, I think this is important to, to create a kind of a uh, microcosm of plant breeding that's similar to Colombia. If all of the varieties are being lost in the wild in countries like Peru and Colombia with all of their industrialization and, and farmers losing their land or whatever, uh, we need to keep the variety diversity alive in other places in order to bring it back again. And from a few, we'll get many. Right, and and it with it, it's even worse, I suppose, in in the Andes, you know, which is the homeland of the potatoes, where it's not now just industrialization, but I keep reading reports that uh, that changes due to changes in climate due to global warming or for whatever reason are are pushing the potato uh, higher and higher. So, so they're actually losing the ground on which they can grow a lot of these older varieties. So, if if we aren't constantly breeding new varieties, then of course we're we're losing I, ground. I think so, right? and I think we have to have some independent, you know, standalone uh, microclimate in order to have variety change and not worry about the climate change. Like God, I can't do anything personally about climate change. But I can sure do a lot about variety change. I can do a lot about variety sustainability. I can do a lot about variety diversity. And I guess this is where my advocacy is involved. You know, how can we really help somebody and help the, the people stay on the farm? So many, so many of the young farmers, when they go back to the farm, you know, they're bored, they're chasing monkeys out of the cornfield, they're having to hand dig the potatoes. You know, they're getting burnt in the sun because they're not used to being out in the sun because they've been in college, you know, getting their degree and whatnot. Um, I, I have friends, you know, in Bhutan that in order to, 
to live a more simple, simple life to join the, the, the nunnery, you know, becoming a Buddhist nun, uh, just to, to get away from the work, you know, and the fact that there's so few jobs, you know, for all this education they're getting. Um, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm just dumbfounded that we have such great opportunities in the world to promote diversity and sustainability at the same time. And I'm sorry, the big companies are, are not our friends, our, our, our gene editing of varieties are, are going to worry us to death. And if we're going to certify something uh, organic, like uh, Bhutan is doing, where organic inspectors come around free of charge, you know, and give advice, we need to emulate some of these kind of things. And if, if nothing else, you know, go somewhere else to show how we can do it back here again. Well, it's, it's amazing, really. When you think about diversity in a crop like potatoes, you know, you're talking about Bhutan and saying they're growing Desiree, which I believe is a, a European variety. Yeah, from Holland. And, you know, I, I've also seen uh, results from around the world for, for many other countries, particularly in Africa, for example, on the Kenosha Potato Project, where you see that they're growing often five or six well-known modern European varieties. And so... It's almost no matter how how obscure and poorly known and small a country might be, you know, from from our uh, vantage, they're growing the same limited number of general purpose varieties uh, that we're true. growing throughout the world, and that seems like a huge lost opportunity. The other thing is disease, you know, and, and you worry about virus X and virus Y, you know, disease when you have tubers you're going to pick up disease. It's almost like a magnet for any kind of disease. And I feel right. that we need to grow varieties that have been going through the screening process, resistant to virus Y and the presence of virus Y, resistant to late blight and the presence of late blight, resistant to rhizoctonia and the presence of a resistant to scab, powdered scab or raised scab in the, in the presence of, of that. Growing these varieties in, in conjunction with difficulty is a way to create lines that can be bred from true seed and constantly reestablish varieties. And like in Colombia and Peru, many of these old line varieties have died out, but when they grew them from true seed, because they outcrossed in different ways, they were able to reconstitute all that diversity all over again. So even though they lost it, as long as you keep growing them from true seed, you can maintain a certain amount of diversity. And each time you have a generation from true seed, you've got recombination, you've got adaptive characteristics that can be applied with human intervention. And, and smart people are, can be smarter if they just watch what they grow and be involved with it, live with it, you know, have it in their back door, you know, constantly with it, not just uh, objectified uh, a concept, but something that they're working with day in, day out. So that's where I'm coming from. And I guess that's uh, where I'd love to have people working with me uh, just, just side by side learning this kind of business. Uh, and it's hard to do. It's hard to find people that want to work outdoors. Uh, people don't want to be out in the dirt and getting sunburnt and uh, getting cold, getting rained on, having to bend down on their knees. But, you know, it's a, it's a natural lifestyle, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a good life. You, it, living outdoors and doing what's, what's free and easy is a great way to uh, not worry about the cares of the rest of the world. And 
uh, we talk about social justice, and we just don't have it unless we have sustainability in our lives. Sure. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, on the on the subject of your operation and what kind of what kind of help you could use. So, what does your operation look like now? What would you like it to look like, and and what will it take for you to get there? What kinds of help do you need? Well, I live in a condo, and I have to drive sometimes uh, two hours round trip just to get to a plot where I can grow things. Um, mm-hmm. So that's uh, part of the problem. And the other thing is that trying to find organic ground is, is tough, and then people are trying to make money with that ground. So going in there through a plot, you know, is kind of a, a little bit oppressive. You know, you're trying to uh, instill, you know, a kind of a cooperative respect for that. Also, I'm getting old. Uh, I've been at this 65 years, so I'm 72 now. Uh, I still got another 30 years in me, but I want to slow down a little bit. But if I slow down, I want somebody to be learning at the same time. I, I don't want my slow down to be uh, retroactive or nothing gets done. So help would be great, you know, uh, getting more uh, pieces of ground available locally. Or if I have to do traveling to different parts of the world or United States or Canada, then so be it. I, I could uh, I could fit that into my program. But I think the, in order to get my work out there, it has to be supported. And I'm not sure how it needs to be supported, but I think it almost requires a certain amount of philanthropy because I don't have the resources to fund all of this by myself. So requesting money for a foundation might be a way of doing it. I think Kurdio mentioned it. Um, if you have ideas on how they can be done and how to get people here to work uh, with me, uh, it's so hard to find people in the United States that are willing to take their time off and, and work with me day by day. But in the, in the developing country, there's many people that would give an eye to, to, to have this opportunity, but there are visa requirements, you know, to, to come here, getting approval through the uh, immigration whatnot, you know, getting a green card or whatever. It, it's tough to do. But I'd sure like to have people who are, have more expertise in this help me on this. And I need uh, to reestablish my website. I have a forum. You can go to it by just searching Google of uh, Tater Mater Pro Board. You can find my forum. There's about uh, 1,000 topics, 7,000 posts on there to, to look at. And uh, the other thing is going on to Facebook and uh, just type in uh, Tom Wagner Tater Mater and you'll probably find me there. And I'll put up links to both of these. So, so let's break this down a step further, Tom. Sure. So it seems to me there are three areas where you really need help. You need, you need land, you need labor, and you need money, right? These are the three <laughs> things that, uh, that, that will yeah. help with, with your it, operation the most, right? It, 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 I think just to show the, the difficulty of uh, seed sales in this country, we really haven't had a way to identify how to make lots of money out of it because our volume is so low and it's usually just one a one person uh, seed company you know and that's difficult um, so yeah it's uh, getting getting it beyond the, the research level requires either additional capital or money or support and I am talking to different people about this uh, I'm kind of been spending time visiting the uh, the World Tomato Society down in Locato, California. They uh, mm-hmm. they have a, uh, a support you know for growing tomatoes, number one crop for gardening here in the United States. And I like they'd have a kind of a a World Potato Society where we were supporting varieties uh, of diversity. Um, the World 
Tomato Society was really proud last year of having some 257 varieties on display that supposedly had broke a Guinness World Record. And I, I told uh, one of the founders of the World Tomato Society that I have about 10,000 lines of tomatoes that could be deemed variety uh, after I've been putting away as my seed ball, so to speak. So yeah, I could uh, I could certainly add to the diversity and potatoes. There's no there's no end to the number of varieties I could have. You well know that, Mr. Whitson, that that uh, true seeds can develop their own varieties. Every seed is a potential new variety. So there's a huge potential of getting great diversity out there, and not just a hundred varieties, not just two hundred varieties, but thousands upon thousands, and 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 have those literally millions of varieties become part of an inventory to be selected upon to create even more diversity. So so let's dream here for a minute. You know, there will probably be a couple of hundred people ultimately in the greater Seattle area who listen to this podcast. Some of them probably have access to land. So if someone has some land and is willing to help out, what do you need? What what amount of space do you need? Where would it have to be located? Um, what kind of access do you need if, if someone just has some land that they might want oh, to share? Oh, well, I, I, I love access to land. Uh, if you have any seagulls that might be predators to uh, tomatoes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I think I'm you pretty might sure the seagulls would do some damage. Indeed. Other people around uh, Seattle, do you have any deer, wild deer that might be predators to tomatoes? Yeah. Uh, there's all kinds of problems. So a greenhouse space would be uh, a great way to have limited number of tomatoes. And greenhouses are great because you can make hybrids, and and that's kind of my my function. I I, I cross tomatoes, I cross potatoes, and uh, greenhouses are good for for potatoes as well because you can put in a in a greenhouse, you know, in in container, kind of like curd. You can put in a greenhouse uh, potatoes and grow them a little bit out of season earlier or later in the season. Uh, put shade cloth on it in the middle of the summer, keep the sun down a little bit. And to create diversity of uh, true potato seed or, or tomato, what have you. So there's a tremendous opportunity here to create a, a, a sustainable program of, of taking the plant breeder uh, resources for all the decades. I mean, think about it the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and the aughts and the teens, you know. It's going to be going into the 20s here. You know, I've I got a lot of uh, experience on this. I think it's worth something to keep it going. And uh, the, just having something where ecotourism could be involved, you know, have people come to Seattle not to see the needle necessarily by itself, but to come see plant diversity and, and it's, uh, it's full of the realm of opportunity. So if someone has a greenhouse or a tunnel and they have some extra space, what uh how how would they know if that's going to be a good fit for you how much space do you need and 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 where would it have to be located i i am i'm basically johnny apple seed all over again johnny potato seed johnny tomato seed i'm constantly dropping off a few plants here and there it's not unusual for me to have 20 different cooperators in this area and so as john chapman had you know dropping off uh, uh apple seeds or a little rooted plants, you know, where you drop teeth off, get seedling come up, and then dig up those seedlings, dig somewhere else. This is kind of my business. So I just need people to appreciate the Johnny Appleseed nature of this. It's uh, it's almost like a free resource, you know, but it it needs needs support. We need to we need to almost make this uh, 
an entertaining idea, you know, that the free breeder can be part of a, a community of making things uh, exciting for young people, uh, make it exciting for old people, um, make it <laughs> exciting for anybody. I mean, make it exciting for me because, you know, I'd, I have no lack of enthusiasm. Well, you know, we talked the other night and I was really surprised that you don't have more takers all around. I'm surprised that you don't have more people who uh, are willing to give up a little space so that uh, in exchange for uh, for you to to share some of your knowledge with them and I'm I'm surprised that you haven't had more people willing to help you out with labor, particularly given that in kind of in the the permaculture community there's there's this concept now of uh of people who travel all over the world and uh, and 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 help out on uh, on various farms in exchange for for knowledge and a and a place to park themselves. I guess you would have difficulty with that, but but there's probably some arrangement you could make to to, to satisfy that somehow. I would love people to uh, put together a kind of a program, you know, like a foundation of sorts. You know, where okay, we're going to help support uh, somebody has a greenhouse who has uh, also a spare. Uh, mother-in-law house, you know, in the backyard, you know, maybe they could house, you know, one or two people to live there and follow the project along. And a greenhouse has a chance of uh, expanding the resources of, of creating variety because you can you do it year round. Um, you know, just having it where people can learn and on a routine basis, you know, hey, come to Seattle and learn how to how to breed potatoes or come here and, 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 and trade seeds, you know, um, Curzio has a great program of, of growing a number of hundreds and hundreds of varieties in in, in bags. You know, I think uh, the same could be done with potatoes here and in containers or raised beds with potatoes, tomatoes, even corn. Um, corn is a special project. I tried to grow a boot meat corn, you know, the open pollinated corn that was sourced from different uh, people in, in Bhutan, but it's such a late maturing corn here. When you take that day sensitive daylight sensitive corn from Bhutan here, you know, it just grows and grows and grows and doesn't even tassel until almost frost. So a greenhouse would be a way of, uh, of breeding those corns, you know, with other corn and even introducing some other germplasm. One of the funny things about Bhutan is I have support uh, a couple of growers there put in a bamboo greenhouse and grow a, a plot of tomatoes and corn, potatoes near Panaka, uh, Bhutan, the old capital city, you know, uh, and they grew a, a corn from Peru that uh, normally is very, very sensitive to daylight. I was able to cross it with varieties out of North Dakota, get it super early, and when they grew it in Bhutan, it was so much earlier than other corn that uh, it grew up about uh, four leaves and started putting on ears and then put up multiple ears after that. So they were very surprised at this purple corn, you know, that it's a super purple foliage and, and purple seed. And I thought it'd be a great uh, resource for the purple corn drink, you know, that's so popular in Peru mm -hmm. and uh, the Philippines. So super early corn, you know, the, the derived from Peru with the high Andes and then brought it in here and bred it with North Dakota lines and, and uh, Washington uh, mines were about the same latitude as North Dakota. So I've been breeding uh, corn to be earlier. And it's funny, you know, I have, have uh, corn that's high lysine, potatoes high lysine, and tomatoes high lysine. And the high lysine, <laughs> high lysine tomatoes, you know, have just what I call the uber umami. You know, it's just so so fascinating to taste 
tomato with a with a like a pizza like meaty flavor to it. You know, you got the first wow, and then the second wow five seconds later, and then fifteen seconds later another wow, and then two hours later another wow. You know, I think flavor in tomatoes is, is the holy grail. Let's let's get the real flavor back. Let's bring some nutrients back into it. Let's bring some uh, cold hardiness into it. Uh, it's so funny. The genetics is is so wasted in this country. I got uh, frost-resistant tomatoes, you know, from the Peru that were crossed in with New York or in uh, New York State. Super frost tolerance in that fruit, not in the foley, but in the fruit. And you can store it in, in a refrigerator, it doesn't turn mushy. The lines I've had grown with my friend Rob Wagner were growing outdoors, and in December, the plants were full of red tomatoes, and they weren't damaged by the frost. You know, let let's let's do something to bring in protein the nutrition to these crops let's make them locally adapted and then take locally adapted and go somewhere else with them and and one of the magic things about uh, plant breeding is you take heat tolerance in one and cold tolerance another crop together and you get more of a, a multi-purpose type of, of crop out of it and let's let encourage this kind of research absolutely uh, i i i want to get back just uh, for a minute to ways in which people can help you, because I think that's important. Um, if, if, you, if you're talking about having someone come out and help you with your work, um, and, and it's someone who lives locally, is this some, something that someone could do on a part-time basis? Is it helpful for you to have someone who can come out on a day over a weekend and help you maintain a field, or um, someone who can come out every other week or, or I have, not. I have uh, an extra room in the condo. If somebody wants to just stay here, you know, to keep it uh, free and simple, you know, that could be done. You know, if, if people want to support, you know, people to do this work, maybe, maybe the student wants to pay for uh, just tuition of sorts to get their training and willing to put their money or their mouth is themselves, you know, that they're willing to, to uh, pay for the uh, apartment close to where the fields are. Or you know any combination of this. Um, the, there's, there's local people, there are people within the United States, there are people around the world that could be part of this. And and Mr. Whitson, your your uh, your procedure on your on your uh, podcast is a great uh, launching device. You know you could uh, help uh, encourage people to support what you're doing and what I'm doing, what Curzio is doing. We could uh, make a real community of, of support for this. And I think it's going to take. Uh, a tremendous amount of cajoling to get people to put money where real food is. If they want to really fight cancer, if they want to encourage, you know, longevity, we have to do it with real food. And I think the real food coming from the individual rather than the big companies and universities, I think this is where the real answer is. We have no hidden agenda. We want to do things. Uh, we're not really after it for, for making money that much but we need enough money to continue the research and to encourage uh, and, and train new people to do what we would like to do ourselves. Yeah. I, you know, I think, I, I think there's probably money out there and people who want to help and we just have to get the right information in front of them. Right. Yep. It's, so uh, this is definitely an opportunity for that. I've been waiting for four years to get a grant, you know, even with the, Montana State University Bozeman, they still cannot get a grant to support my work. Can you believe that? They cannot get a grant. Have you attempted to apply for grants on your own? Not on my own because I'm not uh, not uh, coherent enough to do that. My coherency is kind of limited to plant breeding. 
Well, so that might be another way that people can help you, right? Because <laughs> yeah. there are a lot of there are a lot of USDA grants. I, I am an imperfect human being. I, I have Aren't my we all? <laughs> I have my mindset on what I'm doing, but the rest of the world can go wherever it wants to blow. Okay, but we're building a wish list here, right? So one of the things that we can uh, that we can hope for is maybe there's somebody out there who wants to help Tom Wagner get a grant from the USDA to help with his research. And I'll bet you there's somebody out there who's an expert. Yeah, there's got to be money somewhere. Now, I think it's going to take a bit of money, and a little bit of money will help encourage, you know, uh, researchers or students to be uh, to to learn this kind of work. And and I'm sorry, I I'm I'm not a uh, I'm not I'm not a know-it-all. But I've been at it for 65 years, and I think the universities are so involved with with gene editing, GMOs, on conventional uh, molecular work that they've forgotten the old-fashioned Burbank breeding work. And this is where it's going to have to be. We have already a organic uh, alignment that anything grown organically cannot be GMO modified. And I think that has to do also with gene editing. That's going to be a real boondoggle because with gene editing, they don't have to claim any GMO modification. This whole CRISPR thing, if anybody knows the acronym CRISPR, it doesn't have an E in it. CRISPR stands for clustered, regularly intermittent, short, palindromic repeats. In other words, they're just altering the gene, deleting one, turning it around upside down. Uh, they're, they're, they're just knocking out a gene by deadening that particular allele where that gene is located. And it's not going to be, it's not going to be registered with, with everybody, and we're going to be eating a lot of gene-edited things before long. And I think we need to put some support to fight that. Our own USDA... Um, Secretary of Agriculture is basically having a hands-off approach to the gene editing. It's going to go willy-nilly. Many of the potatoes that I'm working with have been used. The, the double monoploid uh, perea types have already been used in crosses with this gene editing. They've already identified 87 to 100% recombination uh, verification that the gene editing things work. There's going to be a lot of food that's going to be altered, and we need to... We need to stand up against it. We need to do the alternative. Uh, people cannot just complain. They have to do something, and this is one way they can do it. I have to say I'm not too worried about it because I think it. I think these techniques really focus on a different world of agriculture than we're, than we're working in. But definitely freelance breeding represents the alternative to all these kinds of of, uh, of high-tech breeding that are becoming the focus now. And I'm, I'm not totally against the GMO-type work. I think some of it is probably legitimate, but I'm just uh, having the approach that I either have to be all or, or none. So I'm just going to take the approach of none and just go with the uh, organic uh, approach to it. Just try to, try to promote natural genetic diversity and natural mutations and work with those and mix up the germplasm with what exists naturally as close as possible. That's what's so fascinating about using Colombian Andean varieties. They're fairly close to natural, what they were 50 years ago. So we're not, we're not, uh, we're not working with things that have gone through a lot of uh, bottlenecking. And so uh, I'm kind of encouraged. What, what you're doing dovetails what I'm doing and, and what the Seed Savers Exchange doing, you know, maintaining old varieties, uh, 
uh, it, that's great, but uh, I want to go with the new varieties. I want the old to become new and the new become even newer. Absolutely. So, Tom, we've, what, we've run almost two hours here. And, uh, Thank you. You know, uh, eventually I have to uh, <laughs> edit this down to something more reasonable. So we're going to have to wrap it up here. But before we do that, is there anything else that you really want to get out there? Well, I want to do podcasts of my own. I think what I've done here with you is an example of how just ordinary plant breeders should be out there known. A lot of people probably are hearing me for the first time on this podcast. So this is a chance for people to become educated, and I, can't, I think we need to be gentlemen farmers and educate the public as much as we can on what what is real. And um, yeah, I will probably be uh, uh, putting out the podcast of my own. My sons are very involved with this, and we'll probably do some YouTube so that people can actually see me with the products that I'm uh, working with. That's awesome. I would listen to that podcast uh, every time for sure. And I, I'm pretty sure that everybody who listens to this one would be an instant subscriber. One of the things that I'd love to do would be on one of the cooking shows and talking about the green zebra and what, uh, what went into making it happen and why the flavor got started with Alice Waters and the Chez Panisse restaurant, where it can go from here. I like to bring on potatoes that have flavor and look at people's faces right on the camera, you know, okay, what do you think of that? I want, I want, uh, I want people to really uh, appreciate what food is, and I think the plant breeders are are a great way of uh, of encouraging you know a new way of looking at food. Tom Wagner, this has been awesome. I'm really glad that you came on the show, and I hope that we'll do it again in the near future. and uh, And I hope you enjoyed Thanks, it. Thanks, everybody.